Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. take like one minute to meditate, like to get into the state, relax, take deep breaths, enjoy the sounds. And then uh, one of us starts and um, each of us riffs for one minute around the subject of debt. Say your thoughts, riff around it. Whatever you feel comes to mind. After that minute, it's the other person's turn and so on and so forth until the minutes are gone and it's like five turns each and the purpose of this is for each player within their turn to follow up on what the other player is saying not saying the word i or you we're trying to avoid it it's not necessary like it's not a, it's not um mandatory and but it's mandatory or you should try to like respond and build upon what the other person said within one minute mm -hmm. uh, I think that's it. And then it gets to the final one and we just can take a deep breath for another minute and come back to reality. Shall we try? Yeah. Let's do one minute meditation and then maybe I can start. If you give me a chicken, I'll need to pay you back a debt, which is the worth of that chicken. Whenever I say a word, I'm taking something from silence, and as such, I should also give it back to silence. When somebody gives me something, I should pay the debt and give something back in return, perhaps of equal value. I'm trying, starting with like this childish understanding of what debt is. It's quite basic and ingrained in, in so many of our natural human activities. As soon as tokens of debt come in, they just add the complexity to it and make it more abstract and much harder to understand. But debt is as simple as the fact that you sleep at night after being awake for one whole day. It's paying the debt for being awake. Time. I wonder if the symbolic quality of debt is a later addition to culture and the origins lie in where we might talk of i owe you my life as we evolve from from beasts and then apes hunting on the plains there comes a time where perhaps your life is threatened and i i save it right what does that mean to save it but i i perform an act that means you retain your life or your limbs and then there is a sense that you hold something only by virtue of the fact that I, I did something that I didn't have to do. Mm -hmm. 
and there's an asymmetry there. The settling of asymmetries. This is an interesting one. It's kind of a rebalancing, the evening out of something, returning back to entropy, which is the eternal winner. And when one side is very big or the other side is very big, to make it, to return it to, to that state of homeostasis or entropy, I don't know if these are the right words, tends to be a downhill effort to do this, to do this, to re-equilibrate the system. That's an interesting one now. To owe, I owe my life to someone, I owe it to my parents, I owe it to my mother, I owe it to civilization that has brought us to this place. I owe it, I owe it to the apes that bred and, and are in my personal lineage as are and yours. And there's a debt called humanity that accompanies us. Now, the final thing that I'm going to say that comes to mind is that the Egyptians had a painting, had a, a bas-relief of a guy with a dinosaur in a leash, with a large monster in a leash. Time. A monster on a leash. A brute force that has been tamed. What does this debt that is already named humanity owe for every wild force that it tames? But to tame a wild force is to gain something, a power that was not there. The dinosaur is a metaphor for the taming of water, the taming of the fields, the crops, the taming of stone and metal. Freemasons who tame the elements, the stone cutters, the science, knowledge, chemistry, gifts from the gods, gifts that were given to us in a day and age where the interaction with the gods was mediated by paying sacrifice, paying due for it. Before, in the New Old Testament, God would accept sacrifices of blood and, and, and all our toil. In the New Testament, he didn't. Christ was the last one to pay that debt for all of us, which is quite interesting. He was at the ultimate jubilee. Um, it was quite interesting that there's a debt to be paid. When that paid is not, with debt, the spiritual debt, that's what we're talking about, is not paid, then it comes raging back. When you don't eat for a week, you eat a lot when you come back to eating. When you don't sleep for a long time, you sleep for a fucking long time. That's it. Well, the Greeks spoke about everything in moderation. Excess is to be avoided. And how does one maintain moderation when it's not a simple answer of here's one extreme and there's the other extreme just sail the line in the middle life is a zigzag between the poles which means that every turn every tack if you imagine a boat sailing there's the possibility of fucking it up and that's the dialectic we never move straight on 
it never moves straight. We, we don't know. Obviously, we, we can't provide these eternalistic rule, rules because we're talking to the unknown and to chaos, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Because we don't, we engage with it um, via ritual that engages in, a, in an exchange, to engage in an exchange with that unknown, right? To solve that equation in the form of science, philosophy, stone cutting, taming animals, taming ourselves, domesticating civilization, all of that. <clears throat> and all of that is mediated via debt. It's like, how, do, how, how does positive and negative, these basic polarities, if you want to like get ontological, navigate between each other? Well, it's double entry bookkeeping. I don't know, it's, it's kind of like there's a, I give you a coin, you give me something and vice versa. There's a certain sacrifice that needs to be paid. You can have anything as long as you pay for it, time. And we also take loans from that which is beyond us. I'll give you an example. We've agreed to play this game. We have sacrificed some of our freedom of, of expression and speech. We're within the limits of one minute each. We're limited to the topic of debt and trying to stay within the realms of what the other person said. And what happens? The spirit of creativity gives us an unfolding that is happening right now. Now... Is there a paying back that is then due from us? And what is that? Well, perhaps to use the wisdom, if any wisdom emerges wisely, to, to not just hold it. Yeah. When it, when, if you're bringing it down to the personal level, and this is the final turn, I would say, for me, um, if I'm giving all these things to, to see in my head, if I'm given the chance and the gift of being able to contemplate them, then I have to write them down, put them into practice, throw them out in the world in the form of something that I've created, which is something that hitherto in the history of the universe had not existed because this combination of elements that I'm given to see and then eventually to, that I'm given to create are uh, this is a world premiere and that is one way to repay that debt whenever the old mayans would kill a buffalo they would ask for forgiveness to the gods and they would make certain offerings of other things that they had and because they take they took a life which was very useful and so yeah we got a lot of debt to pay uh yeah that's it that's for 10 minutes do you want to go another minute yeah, that feels to me like the meaning of the sacred is to, to bless all that is received on debt. With your Mayans and your buffalo. You said Mayans, right? Yeah. The buffalo becomes sacred precisely because it was taken. And it is... In making it sacred, one reminds oneself that it's not just, you know, and clothes, but it was a being that breathed and felt and mm -hmm. came from other beings and came from that same thing from which we all came. That's it.
That's that's the, the game. Um, let's take a minute to breathe. So that was a good game. Um, yeah. Played the games. This was a good one. Um, the more you see them being played, the more you understand how people play them. Also depends a lot on the players. What type of beats do they add to the, to the, to the string? Some people go poetic. They go imagistic, which we could go if, if we if we want, which I think we should in a little bit. Um, um, some people go. Some people are just are just not so much of a good combination between themselves. Um, but when you get it right, you get it right, and you really do go places. And I think we've got to. In ten minutes, we've accelerated our understanding of debt of sacred debt and i think that's that, that's something that can be said about the the, the game um, i need to put you in touch with with this group uh it's monday evenings it's just the same time of your men's circles but they play a glass beat game every monday evening nice i'm where i'm going where my thoughts are is I'm still on that idea of how in playing a game, one sacrifices a degree of agency in order to channel something else. It is, it's imposing limits in order to grow within those limits, which is the expression of the shift from potentiality into actuality. But it is like a, um, well, it's every game is every game is a decision to, to impose some kind of constriction and then to play within the constriction. And that is, that is life itself, right? We are, we are finite beings. We are not immortal gods precisely so that we can become something rather than anything and thus nothing. Discipline is freedom. Hmm? Discipline is freedom. Yes. But the game has to be remembered that it is a game, right? Discipline that is fetishized, if you will. Discipline that is not situated within a larger framework of, of spontaneous and creative chaos is death. Yeah, suffocating. I find the glass bead game a form of discipline that enhances my creativity and one that I'm extremely happy with. I don't do well with discipline, naturally. I tolerate some of it, but like the bare minimum. But when it comes to this, I think it's a very smart way to channel creativity in a disciplined manner. What's the root of the word discipline? You know this, don't you? Unfortunately not. Although I can think that to discipline someone is, is, is to provide a structure, but also to hit them. 
Anyway, do you remember the image of the, of the dinosaur on a leash? It wasn't really a dinosaur, but the Egyptians had an image of, of like a large beast. Yeah. That was this documentary called Magical Egypt with this wonderful man who I think passed away called John Anthony West. And in that documentary, he spoke about the art of old Egypt as psychological art, as art that is religion and that is science at the same time which is one of the things that actually propelled me in this journey because it was so mind-blowing, the fact that they had these images that held so much wisdom. It's like, a, like sentences on the Bible. You can read them 10 times and they always have this wisdom coming from them. I think that that's just from the fact that they've been selected grammatically and socially via all the events and struggles to actually hold that power. But that aside, one of those images was indeed... Um, two large beasts with large necks like uh, with their necks entangled with uh, onto one another and then two men on the sides like holding their necks with like a leash and the ability to be a friend with the god that you don't feed or, or with that inner god that is the partner in human evolution and also in uh, personal evolution the ability to have like a nice exchange with it to understand the debt to perform the exchange of value with whatever tokens you choose to do. Maybe it's music, maybe it's dancing, maybe it's working out, whatever. We, we, no one knows, we're trying to figure that out right now as you speak. But that ability to mediate that exchange with that sort of monster that walks next to you every day of your life um, is, is what gives one full control of what life is to walk alongside one's shadow. Carlos Castaneda said that when he was talking to Don Juan, which was this shaman from uh, Navajo Drive in New Mexico, I think, uh, and he told him, every day of, of your life, death walks beside you, one meter to your left, to, to like you extend your left arm, and just outside of your reach, death is there. And she walks with you everywhere you go in your life. And one day she touches you and you're gone. And that's the kind of beautiful relationship that we do have with this thing to which we owe debt. Debt of a species that had to appear, debt of an individual that had to emerge, of the silence that is being sacrificed so my words can come out. There's sort of the sacrificed potential that is left untouched and left in the realm of potentiality, which is sacrificed for the sake of one actuality to come forth. In architecture, every decision that you make, like, I'm going to make this wall like this, pretty much denying every other possibility. You're saying no to infinity and yes to one. That ability to choose. Again, there's a mediation and exchange that happens. Uh, there are accounts in, in constant exchange. The infinite actualities out of which we are a few and the infinite potentiality. There's certain debts, quick debts that happen, exchanges, yeah. What do you think? I wanna re-bring up a couple of things you said because they stuck in my mind. Little phrases, the one, the debt to silence, you speak. And silence is sacrificed in order to give something to your words. And something about the saying no to infinity and yes to one. 
silence is infinite, right? Or, or is it? Or is silence itself a product of our perception? If we had more finely tuned ears, if we had dog's ears, we would hear sounds that we don't hear. What sound is, is the eardrum vibrating in sequence or synchronicity, whatever the word is, in rhythm with the airwaves or with the, the water waves or with the, the earth, whatever medium is, is, is in contact with oneself. And the sensitivity of that instrument can be tuned. And thus, the silence, the nothingness, is, is only our inability to, to perceive what is in that space. However, still we conceptualize sacrifice as if there is a taking something out of nothing and returning something to nothing. Mm-hmm. We're playing within this game of our own perception. But given that we live within our perception, it doesn't make it invalid. I'm thinking, why art, why aesthetic, why beauty? In Cynthiaism, Barden Soderquist's book, they argue that the aesthetic sense, the sense for symmetry, is just a byproduct of human evolution. We evolved a sense of aesthetic and symmetry because we like simplicity, because simplicity is what enables us to survive when we are living in a world of scarce resources. If you can model complexity in a way that is simple and efficient and plays itself out across different scenario in time, i.e. there's a symmetry to time, then wasn't it? one has an adaptive advantage. On a global scale, however, and when I say global, I mean universal, I mean cosmic, I mean on the scale of the one that is also the many. Scarcity is, is, is scarce. The one scarcity is scarcity itself, right? Everything is abundant. And so, hmm. What if we flip it on its head and the human existence, the human project, the human experiment, the human whatever it is, is that which makes scarce and thus we pay a debt in order to give things back to the abundance? Yeah, I think so. Because we're an unlikely, we're very unlikely. It's unlikely that uh, the current situation and instantiation of reality is, is highly unlikely when, it, when if you consider all the chances, right? You were the one sperm that fertilized the egg, you know, Asteroids didn't hit us. Your dad and your mom on that specific moment had you and scaled this all the way down to the Big Bang through the history of chemistry and the emergence of biology and, and all those things. Um, so again, you, silence. When you were talking about silence, I was thinking about it like phenomenologically. How do we perceive silence? Not what, what it is technically. We kind of like, I don't even know if we know what that is technically, but I know that phenomenologically from the human perspective, from mine, is the absence of noise, broadly speaking. It's how it appears to us. Let's take it from there. As an artist, you know, and many artists do know that, it's, uh, to pay attention to that which is not said and not done equally, it's equally as important to paying attention to that which is said and done, right? It's the notes that you don't play. The space but, that 
right? It's it's the notes that you don't play that make the the thing come out. However, within silence, there's also some something pregnant within it, right? You can see silence in space and in time, right? Da, da, da. I don't know if you got that one, but da, 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 da. Da. Oh, right? I guess that's that's maybe suggestibility, but there's something inside. You can see this this horse that I'm holding in my hand, can you? When there's an uncomfortability, right? <laughs> there's a certain um, magic to it, and I just want to point to the fact that to pay attention to that which is non-existent, silent potential. I'm drawing broad strokes here, connecting silence to potential is perhaps as important as that which is actualized. When you look at the mirror, the image in the mirror doesn't exist. It's a heterotopia. Um, but however, we need to really take full accounting for that heterotopia, for that non-existence, for that which exists in the potentiality of silence and of nothing, because we need to, inter to interact with it. Transcendent transcendence exists in there. Fertility of thought exists in there. Richness of ideas lives in there. The gods live in there. And they pretty much own us, own us by the balls at this point. And so the ability to mediate with silence appears to me to be also at the core of ontological design, as it is at the core of every other art form that's ever existed, which is, you know, it's the notes that you don't play. It's the paint brush strokes that you don't add. It's the words that you don't speak. So the first exercise that we did in architecture school, one that I was shamed for in, in their boot camp style classes, funnily enough, looking back, was the negative. So we took a city, we, we had to paint in black what was road and in red what was a building or vice versa, something like that. That really helped us understand what is a full space and what is an empty space. And the exercise was kind of like, you know, do, do a city like this big with just volumes, pure volumes, nothing inside. It's just full and empty, binary, silence or noise. I think that there's something very beautiful about that. Exchange and the debt and the equilibrium. We mentioned something in the game that we were playing about when you don't drink water for a long time, you wanna drink it. Once you get a hold of it, once you can eat chocolate for a long time, when you get a hold of it, you're gonna eat a lot of it, especially if you can. So there's also a little tension, right? Between, there's a debt, debt as tension, sacred tension, something like that. Mm. even within a story, right? Three acts. At the end of the second one, you're building tension. What is happening? I wanna know what's happening. When you're at like at the end of the second act, you're like, who killed the, the lover? Was it the butler? Was it the other visitor? And you wanna know. And it, the, the power, the pregnant power is in that which is not said. And there's different intensities of the silence. The silence 
when the auditorium goes dark at the beginning where you don't know what's going to happen at all is a different silence to the silence that happens at the end of the second act even though qualitatively by anything we can measure they are the same silence but how we feel that silence how we project onto that silence the pregnancy of the silence is something that we construct within it which is perhaps where the pleasure of the ascetic person lies in the silence of tolerating something on the outside and sacrificing reaction to that for the sake of internal pleasure i'm trying to relate this to the story of christ i don't know if like if i'm like making any i mean if i'm if i'm wasting thought energy but the silence with which he endured that um the pregnant debt that he electrically charged himself with by undergoing that sacrifice the anti-fragile properties of suffering. I'm going, I went a little bit beyond, I stretched too much here. Do you want to back up? I mean, something that came to mind with me, right, is God as the word, the Logos, in the beginning was the word, and God was the word, and God was with the word, whatever it is, I'm butchering. Again, the word comes out of the silence. The, the silence is sacrificed in order to make the word. Maybe the silence is sacrificed in order to make God. And thus, oh, this is the case in many stories, right? There is God, but then there is also the kind of meta-God, the silence out of which God emerges. Yes, 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 yes. Einsaf and Gether from the Kabbalah, I think. I'm not butchering it. There is indeed that. The silence from which Logos emerges. In, in this like little extract from the book that kind of triggered this whole thing, this thing about the debt, even life itself is a debt to death. There's a little, like in the words of Schopenhauer, it's like this uh, improbable, uncomfortable interval between infinity, infinite spaces of death, or infinite time spans of death. That's what life is. Um, Death and taxes cannot avoid paying what is due to either. Life is held in tension. Life is like this. It's going to come out. It's like holding breath within you. It's going to come out. It's like an involution of potentiality into actuality for some time and some space whatever that is, Ooh. time, space, there's something else there. And incidentally, that's why when you meditate, you close your eyes, you give it some silence, you leave, you till the soil and you leave it to, to repose for some time before you actually plant it. And not only that, hmm? Many of us in the West are only familiar with a very basic meditation, the quieting the mind and watching the breath, but there are so many techniques. I mean, the Buddhist scriptures say Buddha invented 8,000 or something like that. Within yoga, they practice pranayama, which again, there are 
many different methodologies, one of which, in fact, I was practicing earlier today, is to inhale, hold it, and then to exhale and to hold it. And it's remarkable how five minutes of practicing, let's say eight seconds inhale, eight seconds holding, eight seconds exhale, eight seconds hold. What that does to your experience, your presence, just the the electricity of the presence of life is is outrageous. And it's why it's a practice that they do. They also say that it is precisely in that moment when the breath is held that one is able to meditate on the highest reality. Now, what is that? That is, there is a flow, a, 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 an interplay. The breath is, well, I think the breath is the fundamental object of meditation precisely because it is what reminds us that while our, our, our standard experience is dualist, there's a me and there's out there. To breathe is to remember that out there is in you and, and in you is out there. The oxygen comes in and the CO2 comes out in every breath. And if it stops, then we die. But to take a moment and to hold on to that breath, not forever, because that is also to die, but to claim it as one's own and to, to let it be pregnant within oneself is something akin to the process of life itself where one is born and holds this thing for a moment. What came to mind when you were talking about that was the, the concept of microtransactions. You breathe and you breathe it out. And I know Elsa Crowley had one that he called like fanning the flames, which Wim Hof kind of, kind of, I think recommends as well, which is like this, like fast breathing in and out, something like that. Oh yeah, and yoga, they call it Kabbalabhati as well. It's uh... Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm really like a layman on this stuff. Yeah. So I'm keen to learn, but like, these seem like explorations of transactions between transcendence and actuality or potentiality and actuality to go and to come back, to go somewhere and to come back. And if you do it a lot, that kind of has a magical effect on our perception because it's no longer only exploitative, right? Let me, let me get mine where I can. No, it's more exploitative. It's, it's more turned inwards and, and there's a certain fucking like turning your clothes inside out. The fabric of space-time has a little bit of a, a moment of crisis which you have produced yourself by breathing weird. <laughs> right? I was talking about tilling the soil, leaving it to rest, allowing stuff to arise from it. That ability to like dislim into the beyond, into this you know, getting into a boat. According to Egyptian magic, I took some time, some notes from this guy called Dr. Bob Plimmer, and he was talking, he was studying how the Egyptians performed this type of magic and the Greeks after them, which was meditative in a, in a more Western sense that had to do with, you know, putting your attention into this boat of Ra, the solar bark, and then letting it be dislimmed into the chamber of reflections and, and something else. And it's kind of a going and a coming. And, and it's always going and then coming back and then the repose at every at each step. And then that repetition, it, it seriously, seriously feels to me that this pendular energy going back and to and from um, is at the basis of 
all the magical, magically charged and energetically charged rituals. Like attention, look at Tom and Jerry. Look at kids shows. I have a niece. She's looking at you know cartoons every day. It's always about. Oh, hey, oh, hey. That's what attention does. There's, there's a certain sort of primitive pattern, duality again, to it, of the zero and the one. There's nothing and then there's something and then there's nothing and then there's something. There was nothing and then there was a word. It feels like that's the fractal pattern repeating itself across scales in books and everything that you see. Um, that maybe you can sense a little bit better and tap into in a good day and understand better in a good day if your debt to it is paid. That's also something that I think like you can't really, if you want to exploit it, you're fucked. You have to pay a debt to it. That's why people, that's why um, sacrifice is a thing of animals and of people. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering where to go. I'm wondering, maybe we go into the idea of coronavirus as the debt coming back. Pick a route. Pick a route. Where do we go from here? I'm riffing around. Is it the coronavirus? Yeah, let's get current. Let's do it. Coronavirus. Did you know that one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, the one around that was the plague, he had a crown? Mm. That's a good one. It's also like this involuntary magical ritual where everyone just involuntarily turns inward after such a large period of just going outwards, expanding, dissolving borders, endlessly extending supply chains, producing, 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 growing, 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 capitalism and hegemonic categories such as human becoming universal, liberalism, human rights individuals becoming the norm the dissolution of everything else this expansion and then there's this corollary contraction which indeed is caused by corona invisibly so right and the plague god beelzebub the lord of the flies right god well let's go william golding right who is the lord of the flies the lord of the flies is the God that the kids create for themselves when they have no adults around to teach proper ways of being in relationship with the world. And so they want, they want ecstasy and they want orgies. They want all the fun. I mean, they're just kids. They're not really having orgies, but they want that wildness and mm -hmm. happens. Well, kids die. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday I saw a very beautiful definition of morality, but I'll jump. I'll skip that. <clears throat> the ring from the lord of the rings isn't it that needs to be cast back where it once came mm -hmm. so tell me the connection about between the 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 lord of the flies and and coronavirus again riff on that because that was good it's the plague the fly is is connected with, with pestilence. They hover out around the dead. And I mean, I don't know if, if they are actually plague bearing animals, but there was, 
there is a symbolic connection between them that goes back a long way. Yeah. You know, if if, if it's not the fly, then it's some, something else in the air. The fly is small, airborne, invisible. Exactly. The fly is a, if you don't have something visual to stand in for the virus, if you don't even have a concept of virus, then the fly makes sense as that which bears it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, we, we, the symbol for coronavirus is this very scientific stylized also image of a virus, like a little ball with a little thing that looks like a crown. But symbolically, it's flies that are hovering around the rot, around the body and the corpse of the dead god on which we've feasted for so long, which no longer satiates like it used to because we just need more, more, more. It's called the drug of plenty. And there's a certain rot that comes from it being dead and from a flies. That's one way that you could look at it symbolically you know, as, as a fun little mental exercise of symbology. Another one might be that debts have not been paid and gods are angry, like Dugan talks about. Um, he's got the most brilliant symbolical account of what is happening. And he frames his eyes, gods are angry. Um, clarity has been removed. Apollo is removed, right? We don't know what's happening now. Apollo's priest has been insulted. The god of poetry and arts. The highest aspirations of human culture, really. Yeah. Had his prophet insulted. Which is what Nietzsche told us 200 years ago. Yeah. This morning, I was listening to fucking Dave Navarro, out of all people, listening to this 2000s rock and roll that already started to feel a little bit too classic-y, which is why the post-rock 1997 to 2000 rock scene was so classic in a way, because it was mainstream and stuff like that. And that, yeah, that just feels like, you know, the conspiration of certain tradition. In other words, it's the God of plenty, hedonism, it's Anton LaVey, it's, it's the sexual revolution, it's capitalism, it's liberalism, it's everybody has a right to everything. It is Luciferian, it is anti-Christian. All these things are in a fucking line, all like in the same string. And it gets to a point where that string kind of has to it, 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 it's, it's anti-natural. It's like Disneyland. Uh, Disneyland is maintained from the outside as a fantasy. And for so long, we have been living in a fantasy world with so much plenty, with so much interconnectivity. Um, so I guess that's where it connects, really, the emergence of the flies. They emerge, they emerge because the body of the god is not alive. It doesn't replenish itself. It's not fertile. It's dead. Something I've been thinking about liberalism and liberty and freedom in themselves why do teenagers rebel you grow up living under the law of your parents and they do a better or worse job of it but you pretty much what they say is what goes you fight back against it a bit but ultimately you do it the same because you just don't have the capacity or the agency or the will or the concepts to do differently. And then you hit teenagers and you want to say, fuck you and go and do your own thing. But the dialectic hasn't been completed because although there is freedom, the freedom is still enacted in response to the law, to the authority. 
And the process to becoming adulthood is actually to notice that in being a teenager who's just trying to be free and rebellious, one is still living in the shadow of one's parents. To step into adulthood is to step out of that game entirely and go in and say, actually, there is a law and the law need not be my parents' law. It can be a law that I somewhat define, but define with those around me. And then I live in accordance with that law. And that means sometimes I would be free and sometimes I would be disciplined. We each walk that path ourselves. Now, what I suspect is that that dialectic is exactly what's happened in post-Christian yeah we're a post-christian world as well we've gone let's be fucking free i mean you said the sexual revolution but foucault makes this point right that as long as you're playing the game of trying to seek liberation you're still within this this framework where where sexuality is something that isn't spoken about that and that has to be spoken about and has to be brought forwards. There is something that needs to be brought out into the open, which was exactly the same as when, when people were playing language games around sex. It's, it's, it's something that must be named. We still feel we have to name it now. We have to perform it into being. And that is, that is, that is liberalism. And that is, it existed yeah. at the political and the individual. I don't like the word individual. It, the political and the personal. Now, the, what I must stress is I'm not saying liberty and freedom are bad things, but... I mean, there, there was one uh, teenage rebellion, which was the one in the 60s. There was no other. And um, <clears throat> it fits within the mythological phylum of Christianity. It's yet another inversion of the same phylum. That's all I wanted to drop to you. Um, go on. Sorry, I just needed to drop these. Well, this is what I'm saying. We're still playing or had been playing under the... Playing under the watchful eye of the parent who had existed in our psychic landscape. But we have been playing as as decadent teenagers. And perhaps maybe we, if, if you're right, then we had the 60s and then we went back to kind of playing out that one party we went to one time five years ago. It's, it's literally the story of trust fund kids who rebel against their parents. And that's, that's their story. And they just have a lot of money. That's like the West. Like, fuck you. We don't want your norms. Party. It's cool for the beginning. And then you just try to do it again and again. Cause you can, cause you have the plenty to support that. But then it just gets sad. Um, no meaning, you know, like a 40-year-old teenager with a lot of money and a lot of pills and a lot of nothing. Mm. That's the West. Cars, phones, monies, and clothes and all the other shit the TV tells us we can own, right? Yeah, including rebellion. Ooh, yes, we including own rebellion. rebellion against these things. No, no, exactly, man. Because it's all this accelerated game of inversions. Uh, still playing on the same fucking timeline, but garbage time is running out. Can what is playing you make it to level two? That's the thing, right? It's the names of the games of rebelling and being free and owning that freedom and not owning that freedom. All that's reached such a fucking critical, critical vibratory state. And by the way, it's reached it uh, by being dragged along by technology which has been the tip of the spear, like driving forcefully. And it's gotten to a certain point that 
uh, games are going to be going to be upgraded like this, like instantly. And so that's going to be yet another very interesting symbolical inversion, symbolical fucking chaos. Coronavirus might just well be that fucking game-changing event to transition to, to game two, game B, whatever. I feel like the people who speak about game B are well-meaning, but hopelessly naive, and hopelessly daughters and sons of the 60s. All that I want to say is that, indeed, we have liminal events in front of us, rules of engagement that are constantly changing, symbolical inversions, and respectively, their phylums, that, their mythological phylums that, that bring them to us, um, that are bringing us such rich transvaluation fucking routines, right? Uh, and in 2020, they all go inhabit. I can talk to a hyper-Christian person. I could talk to a hyper-sexually liberated yoga babble paracetamol spiritual scene type person. I can speak to uh, a kami. I can speak to a Nazi. You could speak to like all these different fucking temperaments and, and, and mythologies of people that hit, hit a wall in 2020 that are all like meeting, okay, meet you at the finish line. 2020 feels like that finish line symbolically. Would you know everyone's been playing their ideological games where there were no consequences? Yes. Now, fine to be a Nazi or a commie or an anarchist or any of these other lists you've said when, when the shit's actually not happening. Yeah. When, when shit is a fan, when, when the game needs to be upgraded, uh, considerations change. And the correct frame, I think, is to see these all as, what would Viveki call them? Pseudo-religious ideologies. The whole point is that they emerge to give a kind of intersubjective meaning structure to people who have lost a way to produce that. Yeah. Which is where ontological design comes in, right? As we sit here as, as really as, as creatives, as, as shamans, as techno-shamans, and we say, wow, what is the culture that needs to be designed? And the understanding that they are designed, they are nothing but designed for purposes. However, which is why, the, which is why it's, it's the most meta-modern thing I've ever heard. Um, cheers to all the meta-moderns. But it is extremely ironic or cynical, like everything is just a story, but also, simultaneously cynical but also simultaneously sincere and and innocent in saying that all there there is are stories that hell we can design some for good and that that like little bit of teleological ambition that reemergence small as it is of the idea that we can do something for good that's kind of the metamodern twist to it as per some. And the opportunity has arrived, which is to say that when shit has hit the fan, when shit hits the fan and it has hit the fan, uh, you actually do need these things. Like pre-2020 in Disneyland world, you didn't really need. You could just be a Pomo bitch person and just critique everything for the sake of critiquing because you can just get away with it. It's fine. It's like you can just eat McDonald's for the rest of your life and you don't really get those consequences. Trust fund kids. Kids who inherit a lot of money and become they stay kids forever. 
and they just don't suffer the consequences of their actions. However, when consequences become like something to deal with under penalty of death, uh, then all of a sudden something has to be managed and built up to sort us out however we can. And that's kind of a, the ambition of ontological design, ideally. I'll tell you a piece that feels interesting to me. You know, we've kind of mentioned mentioned game B and we've mentioned metamodernism. And then there is within whatever this space is as well, there's the work of Bard and Cynthiaism and the Bard Absolute. I see, I'm sure there are other nodes, but these feel like three powerful mimetic nodes that are doing deep cultural and philosophical work and trying to work out what are what are the the principles and the practices that push us forwards. What I find interesting is that the Game B stuff, I was saying the other day, feels very American to it. And I was thinking more about it. It's not just that. Love it. Look at the people who are like at the figureheads of these things. The Game B stuff comes out of complexity theorists. They are, they're scientists. They are practitioners of logos. You know, the Game B guys are the best fucking military lords, basically. They're the guys who are out leading the hunt. And then you've got Bard and the work on Cynthia. He's a fucking gay pop star. He has the shamanic piece. And I think what I was feel like I was intuiting in on is that the game B doesn't feel like it's got enough art in it. They mentioned that artists need to come along and start symbolizing, but there that aren't really as far as I can see, Game B artist. And as far like, I mean, look at their fucking name, Game B. It's not very artistic at all. It's simple. It's mimetic. And the people who describe it say we like it for precisely that reason. It's a good yeah. that we can put in our Twitter tags and that we can hashtag. Great, but naively simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree, man. There's always this like uh, very... Up until 2020, up until coronavirus, and who knows what's going to happen now, there has been always this uh, dynamic within the society of the spectacle, which is the recuperation, which is everything that has once been real eventually becomes a moment of the false. In other words, whenever you see someone with a t-shirt of Che Guevara, you, that's an example. A revolutionary anti-capitalist becoming a stamp on a t-shirt a representation of the real rather than the real that connects with simulacral theory from Bodhi Lyth. And so all this to say that, yeah, everything runs the risk of being hijacked, of having conflict amongst people, uh, derailed, of becoming, like I said, recuperated by the spectacle, becoming just the hashtag or just something cool. Um, but well, that just happens because there's no God in either of them, in any of them, I think. There's no, like, look, the Egyptians managed somehow to get loads of people to build pyramids. And, you know, research says that they're not slaves. They're actually like paid people with lives and like they have food and families and shit. One theory says that at least there's obviously many. But what that would teach us, if it were true, is that to achieve mass coherence within complexity of many people, you need different things. Uh, 
but perhaps one of the key ones that you need is a God, a shared belief, a priestly class that designs a bard absolute and then is able to reach, to define the name of the game for a variety of people and therefore manipulate their perception and prompt them into action. Who knows? Um, I, 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 for a long time, I've been very attentive to the startup scene in many different areas. And it seems to me that the successful ones, the, those that seek to, that actually achieve to disrupt and, and actually make it happen, have a unique quality as opposed to 99% of the ones that fail, which is literally 99%, uh, which is attunement to truth and to reality. In other words, the 99% that fail say they do something, but they don't. The same happens with architecture. It's like, my building will do this, this, and that, and that, and that, that for its users, for its inhabitants. No, it's not, bro, shut the fuck up. And reality has a way to like test and you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And I like to, to look at what the fruitful ones have achieved and done, which is why I'm, I'm okay with reading anything from Machiavelli to the guy who initiated Hitler esoterically to uh, Osho to, you know, you name it. My, my metric, I'm, I'm always kind of slightly cynical inside myself. I like that the metric is effectivity. And I can smell bullshit very well. Mm. And so it feels like we haven't really figured out precisely in any specific node what is to be done. However, amongst in a Gestalt point of view, in a Gestalt way, uh, there is already content out there amongst the nodes that might configure something akin to a fucking paradigm change invention, uh, such as mobile phone technology and iPhones, for example. I mean, that's a pretty big one. So something akin to that. And just, I mentioned that because it's the most recent one, right? You could mention many others, the pill. Uh, you can mention many others. But all this to say that, that there, there are machinic phylum mythological phylum as well that feed into these singularity moments that end up blowing up and changing history, right? For example, the iPhone, right? They needed to make the screens touchable, large enough. They needed to solve a fuckload of technical problems. They need to have the creativity to invent the bicycle of the mind in your pocket, mobile technology, all these different fucking technologies that have to feed into that singularity moment, be productized, be sold by a genius, and eventually made the standard uh, for, for digital communication and interaction in today's world. You know, Bard mapped that out in 2000 in the Netacrafts, which is like, so um, I see that happening today. Uh, I see a pattern, gestalt pattern in a variety of different things, right? And gaming people have something on it. They're onto it. Bard is onto it. The metamodernists are onto it. The proper Terrans are onto it in their own little just a unique way. Um, a variety of people have valid points of view that linearly, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're right, you believe the wrong people, well, fuck that. Gestalt-wise, 
there's a pattern that emerges that is feeding momentum from the breath of mad Abraxas at the beginning of history that emerged from nothing, blowing all the way down to the fact, to, to the concreteness and actuality of, of right now. Mm -hmm. I sense a pattern in these things, in these people, in these movements. Uh, we also sense perhaps a pattern, which is, you mentioned the lack of phallus in 2020 Disneyland. Yeah, naturally. Um, I don't know, man. But the Gestalt perspective is the one that will like point us to the direction of the wind. And that's well, a pretty I, good thing. For me, the way to switch into that way of seeing is to simply think about, think about what's going on, not in terms of intellectual competition for the truth, but think about it like an emerging music scene. Music yeah. is not about playing and performing a logical truth. It's about symbolizing something that creates a feeling, enough of an intersubjective feeling that artists are propelled forward. Any art scene, in fact, any artists are propelled enough forward and attract enough attention, right? That it then ripples out and causes cascade effects to the wider culture. Yeah. It feels now, like the early stage, mid game, and late stage games of every empire as well. Empires and music scenes might be similar in that way. I mean, I've always felt the correct way to think about religion is as a form of complex linguistic music, not as a methodology of scientific truth production. Good. It's about the concerts and about sticking a record on at home and it's about playing it for yourself. It's not about whether or not a man in the sky literally made the earth, whatever the fuck that means. It's about... It's productizing and scaling transcendental experience although let's not use the word productize because productize is so materialist capitalist oriented it's much deeper and more than that it is how would you say it then well whatever Systematization. But I mean, we can rescue the word product because it comes from the Latin pro plus duct and duct is the same verb as lead, duke, right? Education. Oh. Yeah, right? So product is to, I think, lead forwards, literally. Produce. Oh. Produce. Wow. No, yeah, I mean, what I mean by producing is, is to prioritize is like fucking, here's a prayer. Everyone can remember it. And here's a cross. Everyone can remember it. Take it and spread my word. You know what I mean? It's it's it's, yeah. it's user friendly. It's bite size product. Oh, no. Well, we've done, we've just rescued that word from the lexicon of the fucking production factory, which is. Um, and I think maybe the interesting thing is originally when it was being applied to artisanal artifacts, product, it is, it has a perhaps meaning especially to those who speak the latin and understand the roots it's just once we we forget the latin i mean this is the whole the difficulty of existing within language when we don't know the roots of language yeah we forget the deeper meanings i mean something that was in my mind that i forgot to say earlier and i'm glad it's come back now when we were talking about the breath right what, what happens when one is 
creatively motivated one is inspired right what is inspired in plus spyro spyro is breathe hence spyro the dragon to be inspired is to have taken the breath in and to expire when one dies the breath goes out right mm. the breath of life for the spirit of life as per young mm. see our whole symbolic life world is colonized by these deeper meanings that we don't understand they're right there Right two things yeah that's why Nietzsche was a philologist who knew fucking everything like Greek like you and so many other words one and another one is like Howard Luntz no George Lakoff George Lakoff is uh, is this guy who <clears throat> studies language and he's got an angle whatever but he looks at like how we use language and the implicit metaphors in language like I'm gonna give you an idea we speak about it like sort of physical thing how do you feel? Like uh, I'm feeling up or, or I'm looking upwards. Like up is good, down is bad. Um, getting your spirits up. There's these implicit metaphors. Some, some are spatial, make things into objects. Getting my spirits up. Spirits. You're literally drinking a spirit. You're turning the bottle up. Spirit drink. You know what I mean? That's that's the <laughs> there's implicit metaphors to to the extent that it slims the, the boundary between meta metaphor and reality. So much so that a story, um, that it's that that's why that's when it gets attractive to play with stories because uh, they do offer the power to change reality. And let me tell you something: reality is just one flavor of story. In other words, like the reality tunnel that we determine as everyday consensus reality is just one story among others. To be able to play with stories creatively and to create these, these different reality tunnels in the way that, you know, guys like Robert Anton Wilson did. He was a creative conspiracy theorist of all things. I wish I would have come up with that. He was such good. I love the guy so much because he understood that. The, the ability to be creative with, rea with reality and by stories, by playing with stories, by entering into these liminal spaces where you're downing a spirit drink and you're invoking the spirit and you're talking to it and it possesses you. That ability, a game, it's a dangerous game, very dangerous game, but it's also the fun game. And it's the game for the shaman to play, for the shaman that uh, is obviously, is kind of the mediator taking tokens from the limb from the liminal from the potential from chaos on one side taking tokens from the transcendental and then taking tokens from the consensual the real the city the the, the reasonable the ordered and performing exchanges and by performing those exchanges he becomes the valve that releases steam from one place to the other and therefore not playing games, playing the meta game, which is to name the games that people end up being, but end up playing, right? Interfering with what baseline reality is. Um, look at baseline reality today after 50, 70 years of Hollywood, of, of post-war economic boom, of a Pax Americana. It's much different than what it was a long time ago. Much different. There's been a lot of spells being cast onto us through the storytelling of the last 70 years. A lot of stories being told through the mainstream 
there was someone in that stream releasing the valve so that that stream could continue that flux, which then leads you to fucking Deleuze, right? Of uh, all of that ability to look at desire. I like Deleuze because with the idea of schedule analysis, it gives us a little bit of a key onto how we can spot the moments of crisis in everyday reality and see, hey, motherfucker, there's, there's a plot hole in there. And by looking at that plot hole, you can spot where the metaphors of language and of storytelling kind of falter. And you can see the construct for what it is. And you can see, which is a construct, which is buildable, constructible. So that's that's kind of the fucking gift of from Deleuze to the to the field of you know ontological creativity, esoteric creativity, reality tunnel building, the techno shamans, shamans with iPhones. Something like that. I love Deleuze, mate. It's so fucked up. So fucked up. So French as well. I'm thinking. This is a good place to wrap up. Okay. I've got to get it and I've got to go into work tomorrow. Cool, That felt fucking good, brother. Hello, people, once again. And if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao.